This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from How to Angel Invest Like the Best with Jason Calacanis. All right, amazing interview there with Jason. Let's wrap up with the key takeaways. Again, we have five takeaways today. And key takeaway number one is called wealth creation in the 21st century. Conventional wisdom in the 20th century, for those that grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, was that the best way to create wealth was to get a white-collar job, become an attorney, a doctor, an accountant, or an IT specialist, and make a salary of $100,000 plus. Then one should buy a house and save their money. Don't go out to eat. Pack your lunch. Don't buy your coffee and retire with a few million dollars. But in Jason's estimation, this formula no longer works. He cited the changes in real estate value. In the 20th century, homes were 1 to 2x your household income. Now, if you live in a nice area, the home prices are often 5 to 10x household income. Using one's personal real estate to create wealth is no longer viable. And Jason mentioned that the conventional wisdom from books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Secret Millionaire on the Block just don't apply anymore. According to Jason, the method for creating real wealth in the 21st century will look much different. He believes that wealth creation will come from investing in early stage tech. And Jason himself came from a lower middle class upbringing in Brooklyn. He hopes that others can get smart on angel investing like him and can move from poor to rich or from middle class to rich, or from rich to the ultra wealthy. Okay, key takeaway number two is called no gamble, no future. It's important to mention that angel investing is not for everyone. Most people's brains are not wired to take this type of risk. This is not a normal pursuit. The majority of investments often fail. However, if you're wired for this and you want to learn, Jason recommended to make small investments in 10 to 20 startups. What was not previously possible is now possible via syndicates. Angels can find these syndicates on AngelList, Funders Club, or Seed Invest. He suggests that new angels only invest via syndicates. And to start out with four-figure investments, but act as though they're five-figure. Amass a diversified portfolio and get involved. The most successful angel investors figure out a way to drive value for the startups they invest in. And he reminded investors not to sweat the small stuff. If you're angel investing, you understand that a high percentage are going to fail. So you need to let some investments fail and then move on. Finally, Jason called attention to access. 
We've discussed this on the podcast before in the tip of the week, access is everything. Jason said that getting access to the best deals is one of the major challenges. How can an independent angel get into Robinhood's seed stage round? From his standpoint, they can either build their brand and earn access to the best deals, or they can invest via syndicates where the lead performs that function and provides access to their members. Okay, key takeaway number three is called the Colombo approach. When evaluating startups for investment, Jason likes to ask very basic questions and listen intently to the answers. He prefers short, open-ended questions and looks for incredibly considered, intelligent, passionate, and thoughtful responses. In Jason's experience, founders must be super thoughtful and tactical these days to be successful. So pre-investment, Jason has a small mouth and big ears. Example questions include, what are you working on? Why now? Every founder should be able to answer the why now question. What technology and market factors currently exist that are creating this opportunity? Leo Polovitz wrote a fantastic article on simple, open-ended questions called, why you, why this, why now? And some red flags that he looks for include, if a founder cannot tell you about their customers, if that's the case, there's something seriously wrong. Also, if a founder lists eight different ways that they're going to make money, Jason thinks it's unlikely that they'll make any money if they're trying this many different business models. Now, after Jason's maiden investment, his interaction does change. He now insists that founders send a monthly update, and he asks one or two questions per update. Jason is careful not to tell founders what to do, rather ask them how they're approaching a problem. It's really a matter of asking the right thoughtful questions. If Jason is confused or curious about their location strategy, he will ask the founder how they decided to launch in certain locations. Other question frameworks include, have we thought about blank? How are we approaching blank? Have you considered blank? There's a smart way to call attention to a focus area. And giving directives is the worst approach. There are many ways to run a business, and he doesn't want entrepreneurs appeasing investors instead of focusing on customers. Okay, key takeaway number four is called the Goldilocks Zone. Jason has witnessed a growing opportunity at the seed plus or post-seed stage. Startups that have raised a pre-seed or angel round and a seed round, but are not yet ready for A. They've eliminated a ton of risk. In many cases, these companies have hit 50 to 100K in MRR, an amount that's no longer high enough to trigger a Series A. In Jason's estimation, there are not enough Series A firms out there to serve the number of strong companies. So the bar has been raised for an A, and the gap between seed and A has widened. This is the definition of the Series A crunch, and it's created a major gap in the market. It's allowed firms like Bullpen Capital to carve out an interesting niche, specializing in the post-seed round. Because there's so much opportunity here for de-risk companies at favorable prices, Jason is now seeking out investments in the Goldilocks zone, as he calls it. Okay, and finally, key takeaway number five is called Expanding Scout Programs. For those that aren't familiar, Sequoia launched their scout program in 2009. In this program, they provided capital to angels and encouraged them to make investments. These angels would find the early stage startups to invest in and then split the economics with Sequoia. 
This provided Sequoia an inside look into many hot emerging startups, and they'd be positioned to lead the A or B round in those that showed the most promise. Jason was the first scout for Sequoia when they launched the program, and it was a program that worked well. Their only requirement was that Jason write deal memos for each investment, a practice that became a very valuable exercise. Today, a large number of firms are launching their own scout programs, some via lead angel investors, and many by taking LP positions in early-stage venture funds. Jason said he learned a lot from the program and thinks it's not only wise, but maybe their only strategy for getting access early. When a firm has $500 million under management, how can they deploy $50,000 checks? Large firms are not equipped to do high-volume, small investments. It's far too much work, and it won't move the needle. But they can get involved in early opportunities by investing in the funds that specialize in early rounds. There is even a parallel here with the LPGP market. Many LPs that typically invest large check sizes are beginning to take pilot positions in small funds. Their goal here is not ROI. Even if these funds return 5x, it won't move the needle for a large fund of funds. Rather, they're buying an option. In a way, this is their own scout program. They can monitor emerging fund managers and secure their spot in future larger funds. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from Beacon, an engineering systems approach to investing with Chris Farmer. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee, and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group, or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Big thanks again to Chris Farmer for joining us and sharing the story of Signal Fire. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called Deconstructing Beacon. Beacon is a connected platform that starts with sourcing, but also does monitoring, context, diligence, syndication, and most importantly, per Chris, portfolio support. 
It's a data platform that looks like a Bloomberg terminal for the startup industry. They started building it seven years ago, and they employ a full-blown engineering team of data scientists and tech engineers. Beacon tracks a vast array of data on six million different companies. And Chris started with first principles, asking, what are the KPIs that management teams of these companies are measuring? Those are the same elements we should measure with Beacon. It analyzes items including customer behavior, frequency, engagement, CLV, consumer transactions, financial flows, quality of those flows, news sentiment, and also team construction and quality, just to name a few. And SignalFire's platform isn't just for the investors. There's a UI for advisors and, most importantly, founders as well. Founders can utilize their robust SaaS recruiting platform to address the key need of early-stage companies recruiting top talent. With Beacon, SignalFire has set out to tech-enable the entire value chain of a venture firm from end-to-end. Early indications from folks in my network are that it's an impressive platform indeed. Okay, key takeaway number two is called the prepared mind. SignalFire did not coin the concept of the prepared mind, but Chris does follow it. The approach that came out of Excel has an emphasis on heavy research on existing domains. The creation of market maps that help visualize the landscape and reveal its opportunities. In a previous episode, David Cowan discussed his approach to the space vertical that leverages this methodology. And in Chris's implementation, he's constantly refining the maps. He meets with LP experts and founders to go much deeper and broader than he could do with the data alone. The result is that SignalFire is often much less bullish on the in vogue sectors and vice versa. Their investment in pizza-making robot company Zoom certainly illustrates their fresh perspective on an oft-ignored industry. Okay, key takeaway number three is called the common thread of success. I asked Chris for a common thread that he's noticed across successful startups, and I really enjoyed his response. The common thread in winners are those companies that are doing things full stack. They are creating an end-to-end solution that is vertically integrated, where a company can be its own customer in order to provide a better solution for the end consumer. I discussed this concept with Charles Hudson in a previous episode. We talked about finding the place within the vertical supply stack that enforces discipline on the chain and drives the most value. Chris's point was compelling in that he looks for startups that own the chain, not just a part of it. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Tail Wags Dog, the Affinity Investor. Today, we discussed a data-centric approach to investing. Signal Fire invests broadly across a range of sectors, attempting to find areas that have the most return potential. Whether or not you believe in the data engine's ability to identify opportunity, it is a returns-driven focus. He'll go anywhere, invest in anything or anyone, so long as their approach identifies huge return potential. A very different strategy that I've come across more and more is what I call affinity investing. These are investors that adopt a thesis based on an affinity group, and one which lacks a reasonable argument for why that group will outperform everything else. Here the tail wags the dog. The special interests of LPs drive the investment focus. A recent example is a VC that is raising a fund to invest in those whose ancestors hailed from a specific country 
regardless of where the founder is currently located. Another was an aspiring fund manager that invests only in founders of a specific religious group. From where I'm sitting, there's no discernible strategy for how these founder types will outperform all other founders. To go a step further, this approach suggests that deal flow will be extremely limited to only those founders meeting very specific criteria. As an example, one of the universities I attended approached me 18 months ago about managing a fund on their behalf. The fund was raised. The capital was ready to deploy. The catch? I could only invest in companies that included alumni on the founding or executive team. Now, I currently receive about three to four pitch decks a day, and it's still challenging to find opportunities where I can confidently invest my money. With this proposal, I'd likely struggle just to find startups meeting the criteria. Forget about their likelihood of success. This offer was one of the easiest passes I've ever made. I'm not in this business to manage money. I'm in the business to drive returns. But there is one major advantage to the affinity investor, and that is raising capital. This approach allows the fund manager to tap into affinity group members, those that feel very strongly about their communities and want to support those in it, those that trust other members of their group, increasing their willingness to invest. If two people are aligned on a greater cause, the absolute return of investment is subordinate to the cause at hand. Look, if the goal is philanthropic and one is looking to drive impact, by all means, I applaud the effort. But if the goal is ROI, the thesis should reflect that. I ask, should we be deployment-focused or raise-focused? Should an emphasis be placed on the ability to drive returns or the ability to attract assets under management? I know where I stand. Whether startup founder or early investor, does your strategy drive value or is it built to attract capital? While one may have a faster and easier path to raising funds, we all have a responsibility to deploy it wisely. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.